0: Well, brothers and sisters, open your Bibles to that familiar passage of Scripture, Proverbs chapter 8. We'll continue reading this text as that launching text to address the heinousness of abortion. It being a very grievous and heinous sin in our God's sight, hopefully we are demonstrating how heinous from The Word of God. Well, brothers and sisters, before I read from Proverbs 8, let's ask His blessing upon the reading and the preaching of it. Now, gracious Father, do come and bless the preacher and bless your Word, and may it go forth with great power and efficacy, Lord, toward the elect. May it soften hearts. May it educate minds, may it, Lord, direct paths, may it correct, O Lord, any deviant understanding of this, what it means to have life, what it means to protect life, what it means, O Lord, to be truly pro-life. Come and bless the word, bless your word. And bless us, your people, with it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I begin reading at verse 32. Now, therefore, O therefore, oh sons, listen to me, for blessed are they who keep my ways. And heed instruction, and be wise, and do not neglect it. And blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself. And all those who hate me love death. And thus ends the reading of God's precious word. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, daily I am reminded that the Lord chooses our battles. He chooses the battles that his people must wage in this world. And often these are cultural battles, religious battles, political battles. And the battle that he has put before us in our day and time that has not, it's not anything that has snuck up on us. It's been coming for some time we have just yet, yet we have failed to address it completely is the battle of progressivism, the false religion of progressivism. That may surprise some of you for me to address it as a religion. But I don't think I'm wrong in doing so. This religion of progressivism has been at war with Christianity for decades now. And it has taken root in all of the major institutions of our land and of other countries as well. That's why we're seeing a sort of a a worldwide, at least in the Western world, at least in the Western world, there there is an upheaval of what we call Western tradition and culture. Now on its face, we may say, so what? What? But at the very heart of this attack, this very aggressive attack, and becoming more aggressive every passing day, is the destruction of Christianity, Protestantism primarily. This battle is over religion, and it's becoming clearer. The Democratic Party just voted last week in one of their committees that just addressed the party itself, that they would be the party that stands against Christian nationalism. Now, I'm not advocating all of these ideas. I don't know. I haven't read the books. I don't need to. I don't feel like I need to, at at least at this point. It's not... I mean, these men often think they've invented something and they haven't. I mean, the idea that religion is primary in any culture and society is as old as the Bible. Nevertheless, I enjoy seeing a resurgence of importance when it comes to faith and practice. And yet, there are clear such as the one i just spoke of there are clear agitations and enemies of such a movement because the point is not to just keep christianity in its corner the point is to re it, it's to readdress it's to redress christianity keep the label change the contents We can keep the label Christian, but we gut it and we replace it with other doctrine. I listened to several confessions this week, preparing for this sermon this morning, of those who advocated or at least announced that they were Christians, but had no problem being immoral and vulgar. This is common, and it's becoming more common. Uh, Let me put it this way. It's becoming more ordinary. There's no shock factor to it any longer, is there? I'm shocked. I'm sure you would be shocked, but for the majority, there's no more shock factor. We've come to expect it when we hear it, when we see it. the two sacraments that the best I can tell, and of course I'm very fallible, but the two sacraments that I can tell that are the most important in this progressivism, one is abortion. Now that was on full display during the State of the Union, wearing lapel pins that said abortion on them, advocating this reproductive right. Again, just changing labels. It's not murder, it's reproductive rights. But the second sacrament is queer ideology. And what I mean by queer ideology, I mean all of the sexual perversions, whether it be homosexual, whether it be transgenderism or transconfusion or dysphoria or, or pedophilia, or any other sexual perversion is all labeled under that. Let me give you an example. You can say, well, Pastor, kind of, I think you're stretching there. Maybe I am stretching it, but I don't think so. Because at the heart of the Black Lives Matter movement is lesbianism. And even black conservative men have come out to said, this is a movement of queer ideology that there's no place for a black man in the movement because it promotes queer ideology. It's full of lesbians and homosexuals. I believe those are the two sacraments of this new progressive religion. And there's an extreme amount of pressure being put upon the Western culture to adopt and accept it, and to weave it in its Western tradition so that it becomes normal. Now that's the battle we're in, that's the war we're having to face, and these are the things that we have to buttress ourselves, our church, our communities against, and be that salt and light voice that condemns it, and exposes it, and certainly calls those who believe it to repent of it. And we can't forget that because really the only weapon that's going to fix it is the gospel. It's Jesus Christ changing hearts and minds and lives for his glory. That's what's needed. Let me give you a few heartbreaking statistics as I get into the lesson this morning Flowing out of that Sixth Commandment into the Seventh Commandment, I want to address it philosophically this morning. But let me give you some statistics. The best I can tell these statistics related to abortion are from 2020. And I wasn't surprised um, when I read them as I was looking them up, preparing to you know, preached this morning and dealing with the Seventh Commandment in promiscuity. But just listen to this. eighty 86% of all of the women who had abortions in 2020, at least the best of this survey can tell, more than likely it's a little higher, but 86% were unmarried. 86%. Not. I don't think that would surprise any of us, 60 plus percent, 64, 65 percent were younger than 30. Of all of the abortions, 65 percent or so are under 30 years old, with a good portion of like 15 percent under 18. And then the one that was, again, all of it's heartbreaking, but one that I think is becoming more normal, and what the progressives are starting to really promote is not just one abortion, but multiple abortions, and that is 30% of all the women who had an abortion in 2020, it was their second or third one or more. Now, I don't know if you've... um, there are they're working hard this cult this progressive cult is working hard to influence our young ladies that it's normal that it's okay and what they do is they present beautiful women who have had abortions up in front of them and they have, and they give a testimony of what a wonderful and beautiful experience it was to murder their child and let's just face it Our young people are impressionable. They're impressionable. Without a doubt. I mean, we see it all throughout the Bible. We have a whole book called Proverbs, and it's all about impressions. It's all about being careful who you allow to impress your young people. And and obviously, primarily, it ought to be the, the mother. It ought to be the father. It ought to be the family. It ought to be those closest to your values and worldview, right? Brothers and sisters, I, as we press onward in this battle, particularly in the state of Georgia, where we have an opportunity to knock down one of these sacraments, these idols of progressivism, and, and, and do away with abortion, because it is a sacrament of progressivism, it's also a sacrament of the satanic church. It's an open sacrament and religious liberty. That's the legal argument that the Satanists are using to sue states that want to rid, who want to establish something like a heartbeat bill. They want to sue the state because they say, now listen to this. They advocate, their legal argument is it violates our religious rights to have an abortion. It's part of their religion. How clearer of demonism can you get? And we have, these are battles, these are wars, make no mistake about it. And these are something, this is not in darkness. This is not in secret. These are open billboards. These are things that are advertised. These are, these are, these are made known. They're not ashamed of it. And I want to tell you something. As, as this sermon is going to be more apologetic than anything this morning. It is Christianity that has given light to the world. It is Christianity that has fully set forth the value of human life. Now, brothers and sisters, as we go to address the seventh commandment this morning, as we deal with that commandment that addresses adultery, Right there, after the commandment, you shall not murder, another negative commandment, you shall not commit adultery. One is the protection of life. The other one is the protection of marriage. The family. It's pro-family. Both of these commandments are given in the negative in order to add strength to the admonition, don't do this. So God gives it to us in the negative so that we would even heed a stronger, that we would even have a, 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 a stronger lesson of stay away from that. Now, brothers and sisters, this may stagger your mind, but we don't, you don't need the Bible to understand the importance of the family. you can look all over the world and you can find the family every culture every society everybody has a sense and understanding of a home of a of a wife a mother a father a husband yet those places that have uh, have brought the gospel of Christ in, those places that have the word of God are those societies and cultures that have elevated the family, that have brought the family to its fullness, if you will, and set it in its place as the root of all humanity. But all cultures and people recognize the importance of a home and a family. Even in your darkest regions of the world, you'll find a family. It won't be ideal. That's not the point. But you'll find some type of family unit that is the basis of that tribe or of that culture or in that place. Where the Bible reigns supreme, the family ought to be the strongest. And where the Bible is reigning supreme and where it has reigned supreme for generations, what do we see? Satan's attack upon the home. The attack has been upon our families for decades, if not centuries here. The value of life is important to that meaning that the family is at the heart of life coming into the world where the husband and wife in their intimate relations to each other are to what? Bring forth children. And adultery is certainly against that. Adultery certainly tears the family down. It breaks up two homes. It's a devastating sin adultery is. Not unforgivable, but very devastating. And I will demonstrate that toward the end of our lesson this morning. But let's address this value of life. Because this is at the heart of what it is to have a family and what it is to understand the importance of a family, that this unit is the root of, of all mankind, as it was from the very beginning, with God creating Adam and Eve as our first parents and through them bringing forth all of society. Satan went after the family, Satan went after the home in order to break it up, in order to cause chaos and destruction in God's world. Let's look at a verse of scripture that I hope when you are talking with someone and you want to demonstrate just how valuable human life really is, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 the value of human life to me can be easily dealt with and to me solved by understanding the gospel it's the gospel that sets forth it brings the clarity of course people understand that murder is wrong and no matter what culture and what society you go to when a woman becomes pregnant what does she say i'm with child i'm with a baby I'm carrying a person without the scriptures, without the scriptures. But with the scriptures, it has the value and the promotion of, of when, when the gospel comes in and the word of God brings even a degree of richer life and importance and value when we understand Peter 1.18 knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood of the Lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. It's the point that life is so valuable that God sent his own son into the world to lay down his life for yours and mine. And he didn't use the things of this world to purchase our lives. He used his life, that perfect life. He traded his perfect life for our sinful lives, his sinless life for our sinful lives. And to me, for God to leave heaven and come into this world to be robed in flesh, to grow up in obscurity so that he might give his life, beloved. Here is the value of life presented in the gospel. You're valuable. This is not just busy work for God. This is God demonstrating the value of human life, and he sends forth his son that he might redeem those from their sins. That's humbling. And it's not just a certain class of people, but it's all classes of people that Christ comes to save, doesn't he? Christ comes to save all classes of people, all kinds of people, all from all kinds of cultures, all kinds of societies, all kinds of backgrounds. Why? Because their life is valuable. And it's more valuable than gold and silver. That's why Jesus said, Why does it gain a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? It's valuable. When, we, when a life comes into this world at conception, that person lives forever. Forever. From that moment on, that person will only experience death of the body but not of the soul. They will live forever. That's valuable. We are different than the animals. We're not we're not like the animals. We're more precious in God's sight than animals. And that's another part of this progressivism and all of this climate agenda and cult and this this cult of, of worshiping the earth. That has sought to replace man with dirt and trees and animals. Because it's an attack upon Christianity. It's an attack upon Christianity because Christianity sets forth the value of human life because we're made in the image of God. And it's valuable. Well, brothers and sisters. When we talk about the, 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 the battle, debate that's raging, as we look at, a, at our own state representatives, the, the bill, that the Equal Protection Act that's been set before them, and all of the fuss. Now, you wouldn't imagine there being so much fuss over something so simple and so right. Right? It's mind-boggling, isn't it? And so what I want to do is I want to address sort of the the idol of the pro-life movement somewhat. And I want to address this idea that, well, we have a heartbeat, Bill. Aren't you happy with that? Well, the question is not, or shouldn't be, if I'm happy with it or you're happy with it, the question is, What does the scriptures say about life and when it begins? What does the Bible? I mean, listen, we are not some tribe down in the Amazon jungle that's never had the Bible. We have had centuries of the gospel preached in this land. We should know better. God has raised up stellar lights that have preached the word of God and we do know better for the most part, don't we? And we can't plead ignorance and then hide in a corner and expect there to be no responsibility or culpability for these kinds of decisions. So let me address this idea of the heartbeat bill and why we should replace it with the Equal Protection Act. Now, I'm not going to start with those common verses of Scripture that most people refer to, even though there's nothing wrong with them. For example, Jeremiah 1.5, the Scriptures say, before I formed you, this is God speaking in the prophet, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. You might say, when I, before I formed you, before you were conceived, God says, I knew you, Jeremiah. I knew you, I knew your name, and I knew your occupation. I knew everything about you. I had ordained it to be so. That would be enough, would it not? But let me give you some other scriptures that help us understand this idea, this, this, this sort of this whole truth when it comes to this idea of conception. Job 3 in verse 3. Job says, May the day on which I was to be born perish, as well as the night which said, A boy is conceived. The one born was the same one who was conceived. There's no difference in personhood, only in development. Look at what Job says. On on the day on which I was to be born, perish as well as the night. Let it be done. He was so grieved. He was so broken. He said, "Just, just let my memory pass away. But notice what he says. On the night that I was conceived. What is Job under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit telling us? That his development, his existence, is an unbroken connection from the time of his conception to his birth. Unbroken. That there is no difference except by development in who Job was. At conception, Job is but a small thing. And on a cellular level, at birth, he's at a different stage of development. And as a man, when he wrote this down or when he echoed these words, he was at a different stage of development. It's still Job. Still Job. Psalm 51, verse 5, David writes, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in guilt, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, David doesn't write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and say, conceived. It seems misleading that if that conception wasn't David as a person, Then it would be misleading to say that was me, or somehow it became me in development. No, David says, no, at conception, that was me. Being very consistent with what Job just said, didn't he? You see, this idea of personhood, brothers and sisters, this personhood bill is this heartbeat bill is a little misleading. Because what it does is it segregates the development of the person and it prejudices the person before there's a beating heart from the rest of him, from the rest of their development. Lawmakers have taken the right to choose as God to say, this is good, we'll start here, but anything before this... Well, it's fair game for an abortion. Uh, And by the way, one of the things I didn't bring out in the statistics that since 19, wow, since 2020 or 2019, the majority of abortions through college age girls is through appeal. So let that sink in. Look at Luke chapter one, verse 39 through 42. In fact, I need to open this up in my own Bible because I want to, I want to. Now notice in verse 26 through 38, the birth of Jesus is foretold. Mary is given the announcement that she will bear The Savior of the world, that she is going to carry the Savior in her body, that she is going to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, and she's going to conceive a child whose name will be Jesus and who will be Savior of the world. But look at verse 39. Immediately after the angel announces this to Mary, look at that very first clause. Now, at this time, Mary rose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to the city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. Now, you might remember who Elizabeth is, Mary's cousin. She is a much older woman and is pregnant with John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Elizabeth is six months ahead of Mary in pregnancy. But this is my point, brothers and sisters, in this, uh, in this apologetic that we should have the Equal Protection Act and not the heartbeat bill. Mary receives the announcement that she is conceiving Christ under the power of the Holy Spirit. And the text of scripture tells us that she immediately gets up and goes and sees Elizabeth. I'm going to, to posit before there was a heartbeat. I don't think it would take 12 weeks to get to Elizabeth's house. My point is, she's carrying Jesus at conception. But let's not stop there. Look at verse 41. Even in Jesus's human development, which is at the very beginning of conception, verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth, was filled with the Holy Spirit and cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And I think that's a strong argument against the heartbeat bill, biblically. That life begins, development begins at Conception and just because a baby does not have a heart beating in its body, has not reached that point of development, does not mean its life is any less valuable in God's sight and hopefully our sight. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. But when he had brought this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Notice notice the, the connection of conceived and child. These are not mistakes. This is, this is ordinary. And look, this is something that we know naturally. No woman says, I'm pregnant, but I'm not sure if it's a bass or a, 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 a raccoon or, or what. Maybe it's going to turn into a baby. No, we don't talk like that. That's ludicrous. That's absurd. I'm pregnant with a child, a baby. A member of our family. Luke 2, 21. And when eight days were completed, so that it was at that time of his circumcision, he also, he was also named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Notice again, what's the the whole divine mindset? This conception is a person. It's a person and even a gender. He, he will be named Jesus. God already knows what those cells are as far as gender. And we must be careful as legislators of creating a special class of preborn children. And I believe the heartbeat bill does that. I get the idea. I understand the premise. I'm not, a, I'm not hardened to the, to the understanding, yes, it will limit many abortions. I get that. I understand that. But it's a compromise is what it is. It's a compromise so that we can put on a pro-life garment and leave this window of opportunity to address this, most of the time, promiscuity. I believe it was 68% of abortions of college girls said they use it as a form of birth control. Two studies done universities in Texas and universities in California, a conservative state and a liberal state combined together, this is kind of what they come up with. It's not good. The bottom line is we live in a very promiscuous culture. We live in a culture that violates the seventh commandment. We live in a culture that does not honor and protect marriage. We live in a culture that does not highly exalt marriage. I mean, there's more single women today than there's ever been before and don't plan to get married. Having children are using abortion as a form of birth control because they will not control their appetites and impulses. Now you can see, beloved, how the breaking of the seventh commandment leads to and is the grievous sin in God's sight because of how these pregnancies are dealt with. If if depraved men are a Christian that's becoming increasingly unchristian, I think it's synonymous with a culture that's becoming increasingly uh, insensitive to the value of life. Do you agree with that? As we become less Christian, we become more selfish and we become more pro-death because we become... Less responsible and culpable for our own actions. Let's, when you deal with the seventh commandment, what's at the heart of the seventh commandment? Fidelity. Fidelity. Faithfulness. What is a marriage? A marriage is a union between a man and a woman. It's a civil union, it's a commitment, it's a covenant. Even our confession of faith calls it a civil union, a contract, if you will, where two people come together and agree to what? Love each other till the day they die. And to, and to uh, and, and, and if, if can, to bear children for the glory of God and the propagation of the human race and to raise up a holy seed, meaning to train them up in the way they should go concerning the gospel in Jesus Christ. Promiscuity destroys all of that, especially adultery. Adultery destroys two families. And adultery is paraded around, adultery is celebrated, adultery is... I mean, in fact, let me just put it this way. This is the best way to say it. Abstinence is mocked. Self-discipline is made fun of. A control of one's appetite is considered absolutely almost inhuman. And now we see the celebration of evil. We see the celebration of abortion. We see the celebration of, of of a of a woman murdering her child. We see the celebration of sexual promiscuity it's It is becoming almost unbearable in all of the uh, what we call the i don't like to use the word celebrity circles because I could care less about the celebrity circles, but it's prominent anywhere there is any type of of modern, secular culture. We're going to end this evening, or this morning, if you will, turning the book of Proverbs. Now, I made this statement a few weeks back, and I'm going to demonstrate it for you this morning. How I said verse 32 through 36 is sort of the, the capsule on the previous chapters, it's only stating emphatically what the other chapters say before it. And that is this, when one sins against God, when one follows his own ways, he destroys himself. And the, the, the more heinous the sin, the greater the destruction. Now, out of these seven chapters that Proverbs open up with, Chapters 2, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, all deal explicitly with immorality. So, in those first eight chapters, you have four chapters that explicitly address immorality. And in every chapter, you have the idea promoted that sinning against God is dangerous, it's self-destructive, but when it comes to immorality, it's emphatic. Look at Proverbs 2. look at verse 16. All right, we're not going to read the whole proverb, but you can read through the whole proverb. He's setting the stage. He gets to verse 16 and he talks about wisdom, prudence, and discernment. Now these have value because they are able to keep us from these sins. In verse 16, he says that they deliver you from the strange woman from the adulteress who flatters with her words. Now let me say this, it's not an impossible idea that there is a personification of sin and all sin is flattering, all sin has this temptation element to it, it flatters us, it's appealing to us to what? Partake of it, that's true. And there is also this idea of going all the way back to the garden where you have that original temptation of Adam and Eve, and you have Eve's words to Adam take and eat, it's good. So there is in the Hebrew mind this element of a, a hearkening back, if you will, to the original sin. Remember the words of Eve to Adam take and eat, Adam, it's great. It's good. And that's the words of the adulteress. This activity is good. It leaves, verse 17, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Of course, it's addressing this Hebrew marriage, if you will. She is one who has been in covenant with a husband. And she is Not being faithful to that covenant. That's the heart of the seventh commandment. commandment—is fidelity. Fidelity. That's why we're called in scriptures as Christians when we sin against God or we backslide spiritual adulterers. Why? We're not being faithful to God. We're not being faithful to our church vows. We're not being faithful to the word of God. We're not being faithful to our own selves, right? Because what are we doing? We're destroying the image of God even in us. And we're not being faithful to our neighbor. Obviously, if one is being flattered, if one is being enticed, there's a sin against the neighbor. Verse 18, notice how the Proverbs set forth this destruction. Her house sinks down to death. That's pretty clear. There's a finality to it. There's a consequence to these decisions. This immorality has a a dire effect to it, and her tracks lead to the dead, meaning this is the context, this is the environment. None who go down to her return, nor do they reach the paths of life. And so you will walk in the way of good men and keep the paths of the righteous for the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it but the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be uprooted from it. You go back to David, King David and his adultery with Bathsheba. I am of the persuasion that as a superior, he did force himself upon her. David never recovered from that adultery. Never. Was he forgiven by God? Yeah. Yes, he was. But he suffered as a king and as a father the rest of his days. That's what the scriptures are setting forth. For us to heed. Do not commit adultery. Stay away from that activity. Remain faithful to your marriage vows and covenant to one another. Do not take them lightly, and there will be many temptations. We could go through Proverbs 3. Again, it's saying the same thing. Even in Proverbs 3, there's this clear understanding that sin has a physical effect upon the body and the mind. That's what we talked about last week when we talked about soul murder. That's one of the reasons no one's talking about this, about the abortion, the suicide rate, getting higher and higher of those women, young women, committing, having an abortion. Nobody's talking about that. See, we call it women's health. That's kind of, we can't really call it women's health if we, on the one hand, have this this suicides increasing. See, that that doesn't fit our agenda. It doesn't fit the, the narrative, but it does. It kills the heart of that young woman. And you say, well, pastor, they're going out and having more. You you know what that first one did? It hardened their heart. They were killing themselves. And there is room for pity. There's room for pity. These are the things we have to talk about because no one else is talking about them. We, we again, I want you to go this afternoon and read these passages of Scripture. Verse, uh, paragraph, or I'm sorry, chapter 7, Proverbs. Notice the emphatic, again, it's all so consistent. Verse 22, suddenly he follows her. This is the woman that is walking the streets looking for the victim so to speak and she finds one and it says suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to slaughter not a pretty picture as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver and a bird hastens to the snare and so he does not know that it will cost him his life Therefore, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many are the victims she has cut down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way of Sheol, descendants to the chambers of death. Let me say this, and I'm going to end with this. There's a whole economic environment of young men following these internet gurus. And these gurus are giving young men advice about life, about work, and about marriage, and about their future and all of these things. And these are very popular men. They have lots of followers on the internet. And yet some of this stuff is good because it's reasonable. Most of it is not. It falls mightily short of a biblical worldview. It shows you the church has not filled the void that exists in our own nation with truth, with life, with with a vigorous understanding of life, the vitality of life. And these young men are going out and getting it in other places just like the young ladies are. There's all of these young women that are following these internet uh, uh, sensations Personalities—that's where they're getting their advice. And I hear some of this advice about relationships and about how how to treat one another and what marriage. I mean, in fact, let me tell you this—and it's staggering—and it's it's so anti-Christian that there is a great movement that never get married. We don't need marriage. Just this whole movement uh, of men—we don't need marriage. We don't need women. It's a countering to the feminist movement. I mean, it's just, it's ignorance feeding upon ignorance. It's blind leading the blind. But what you're still having is people trying to live like they're married without the responsibilities and without the obligations that come with it. And so the alternative is what? Abortions when there's a pregnancy. Brothers and sisters, we have failed as the church has failed this nation. The Westminster Confession of Faith tells us that there are seasons of the church, the visible church, where it waxes and wanes weak and strong. Always the true church. it It can never cease being the true church because God is the one that perseveres as church. But I believe we are in a season where the church is waxing weak. And because we have not filled the void with the truth, many of the people sitting in church today will go on the internet and find advice because they're not getting it from the leadership of the church, or at least not good advice. May the Lord have mercy upon us. But I want you to see this morning, let's sum it up. The connection between the seventh commandment and the sixth commandment, it's there. Obviously, the seventh commandment, even though it is a commandment in a negative that gives this, this, this negative of do not commit adultery, it's the fidelity of a relationship between a husband and a wife, but it forbids promiscuity and sexual immorality. It forbids it. Why? Because those things have been reserved for the relationship of the husband and wife. That's God's gift to them. To the family have been given the role and responsibility of raising the children. And I could say much more, but not not needed. We can address the family and all of those things some other time. The point being is that this abortion is a heinous sin in God's sight. And it's being used for birth control. And we have a government that's promoting abortion as a sacrament of the new world religion. And we must be aware of it and combat it at every level. Let's pray. Now, Father, we pray for mercy. Lord, we are culpable on several levels And in various degrees, but Lord, we stand opposed to this world agenda that seeks to do away with Christianity, the Bible, that's it's, its heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, sinners coming and repenting of their immorality, coming and repenting of their soul murders and, Lord, any other physical murders and coming and sitting at the feet of Christ and confessing their sins and following him and being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Lord, we oppose this agenda For the gospel is the only hope of this world. It is the only hope. It is not in the world economic forum. It's not in the Republican Party. It's not in the Democratic Party. It is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It resides in him, in his person as he sits at the right hand of God where he exhibits the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And all the nations must do business with him. All civil magistrates must answer to him and come to understand that there's an authority above them that is superior and is all-powerful and has the ability of throwing both the whole person, not just to kill the body, that's the power of the state, but the one who can take the soul and the body and cast them into a lake of fire for eternity. Now, Father, we do pray for mercy. We pray for strength. We pray for the Lord breathe upon us and continue to give us sustaining, persevering grace related, Lord, to this work, this labor, this battle that we face. Because it touches all of us. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.